Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Finally decided that we're going to do a long weekend retreat because everyone's been asking us and we just wanted to find the perfect place. So we did. Yeah. And I think it's nice because there's something about doing a four night, three day retreat that makes it a little bit more accessible to everyone when a full week away can be tough. Totally. And, you know, we really decided to do it this time on just so many of the themes that feel alive in our work with our clients and what the, you know, the conversations we're having in our group work with clients um, around the shift in what's happening right now in the collective. Yeah. And what's happening for women. And I think it's a really unique moment in history that we're living through. You see it in so many of the conversations that are happening with, you know, the success of the Barbie movie, the way we're really challenging these patriarchal structures that we talk about constantly and how much the level of discontent and, mm-hmm. um, knowing that something needs to change within my life, but what does that look like even knowing it, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of times people are coming to us in a therapeutic setting and they're telling us that they're feeling, you know, overwhelmed, resentful, disillusioned with their life, disconnected, right? That they're struggling to really identify kind of what is theirs and what is social programming, that they want something different and bigger from their lives, but they're not really sure, like, how, what does that look like and how do I get there, right? Yeah. So we want to create a long weekend where we're going to give you some of the tangible tools that we have incorporated into our own lives that we're working with and the clients that we work with and really what it looks like to start to embody the rise of the feminine principle that we know this moment in history is sort of prophesized to be about for all of us, right? Hell yeah. So we're also going to walk away really understanding what it means um, to envision our life with a real authentic sense of clarity, with purpose, with aliveness. We're going to have no apologies here, right? We're going to also break down some of the limiting beliefs and where they come from, right? So we're going to get into the upbringing component. Um, Why and where is all of this highly codependent patriarchal, misogynistic kind of, um, you know, approach to life. Like, why are we carrying this, right? It's really important for us to understand and break that down. Yeah. So we're calling it the return of the sovereign feminine. It's going to be in Malibu, California, the most beautiful estate, January 18th through 21st. And we're just really excited about this one. It feels really close to our hearts. Yeah. So you can click on either of our bio links on Instagram or social, um, or you can go to my website, vanessabenna.com backslash retreats, and you can check out all information there. I'm really excited for this conversation, for you all to hear this conversation. Um, I just think it was something that, you know, she fell in our lap and it was, it felt right. And it was a conversation that I don't think you and I have actually had on the podcast yet. And so we were excited to get her on here. And I think um, there's much to be learned. I love her. Mm -hmm. I was just sitting after we talked to her. I just think, um, first of all, I just find her just really wise and there's just like a lot of rich um, just depth in what she's saying about the human transition that we're going through from sort of these external authorities dictating our lives to an inner authority being the space that we move from. But she's just also like, you know how you just like meet people and you're like, oh, well, like you would say, I would love to have a beer with that person. But I feel like she's like our people. Like I would just love to sit and ponder all the things with her. (laughs) She's really cool. It's something about too, when we meet these people who have so 
I don't want to say thoroughly because that sounds like it's done, but thoroughly still feels resonant. So thoroughly like transmuted their own trauma and their own mm. experience in a way that then makes it tangible and they're able to kind of use that as a platform to usher others, right, through similar situations. Um, and she says this in the actual episode, but she talks about how some days she's only like one day ahead of her clients, like on her own journey, which I love because it's so real. Um, but yeah, she just feels like one of those people who really was able to transmute her own shit and turn it into something that was just like profound and, mm. um, is such a guiding light, I think for a lot of people struggling, um, specifically with religious trauma, which is what this, this whole conversation is about. Yes. Yeah. So y'all are about to listen to our conversation with Dr. Laura Anderson, and she is a licensed psychotherapist. She's a trauma resolution coach, a religious trauma consultant, a speaker, an author, and an educator. And she's on a mission to provide religious trauma-informed support and resources to survivors of and those helping survivors of religious trauma, adverse religious experiences, faith deconstruction, cults, spiritual abuse, and leaving high demand or high control systems. Um, and she has a book out uh, that we talk to, you know, we speak to in the in the episode as well. And we will link all that in the show notes. Mm. I hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Danae and I are super excited for today's guest. We have Dr. Laura Anderson in the house. And we're just excited to have a conversation before we started recording. We were talking about um, the importance, I think, of the conversation that we're going to have, the topic we want to talk about with you, you know, your specialty, your background. Um, obviously, our listeners know that Danae and I talk a lot about spirituality in the context of psychology, um, but we've never really broached the conversation around religious trauma, right? Mm. And before we started recording, we were talking about how I've had multiple clients where that's been, you know, a subject of our conversations together and a, and a real hotspot for them as far as healing. And so it was when your email landed in our email inbox, I was like, yes, let's get this. Let's get this woman on here so we can have this conversation. So we appreciate you joining us. Yeah. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Like we said, it's an important one to have given the how prevalent this is, I think, in our culture and how often we don't talk about it, even in therapeutic spaces. Totally. Well, we always, with all of our guests, we just like to know too a little bit about you. And so I'd love yeah. if you could kind of take us into how you became Dr. Lori Anderson, right? Like how did you get <laughs> to be doing the work you're doing and kind of become who you are right now in this moment? Yeah. I I thank you for that. Yeah. I, I laugh because it's funny. I had my friends from very young in like elementary and middle school who were like, we're going to have to pay you someday. Um, I think I always just had that kind of posture of being reflective and interested. And, um, and, and I loved it. I loved being, I loved being able to be a source of support for people. But in the culture I grew up in, which was a high control religion, uh, really the pinnacle of my life was going to be a wife and mother and not to dismiss anybody who is a wife or mother or doesn't have a career outside the home. Those are certainly incredibly important jobs. That was just the only option really that I had. Um, and so when I graduated from high school, despite having a, a a plethora of um, acceptance letters and places that I could go. I ended up um, staying close to my family's home. I went to a community college and figured I'd meet my Prince Charming. And then I could, you know, start this life that I was supposed to live. But that did not happen. I instead started working at the church that I was, had grown up at. I worked in the youth department. I got a youth ministry degree with Bible and worked there for several years before I ended up leaving due to a lot of spiritual abuse. Did not have the language for that at the time, but I could really feel it in my body. And that I... I I had toyed around going back to school for my marriage and family therapy degree. I had started applying to some programs, was pretty far into the process. And actually, uh, part of the reason I quit my job is because they were actually, the people at the church were going to these programs and saying, do not accept her, don't hire her at these jobs and that sort of thing. And so it was very, yeah. it was like blacklisted essentially um, in 
um, in that community, but I ended up quitting. I worked at a community college. I hated the job, but it was enough to get me out of kind of some of these high control contexts and to see that perhaps the things I had been experiencing, uh, everything from the treatment of myself, as well as the doctrines and the beliefs and the practices that perhaps there was more to life. And so I kind of really covertly started applying to, um, uh, master's degree programs, um, and, and then went and I, I got my degree in marriage and family therapy. And as soon as that happened, about two months after I moved away because I knew I needed a career that allowed me, uh, uh, just like the flexibility to live anywhere. And I knew therapy could do that. Whereas like ministry could not. Um, and so I, that landed me in Nashville, which is where I currently live. I've been here for about 14 years. And it was at that time that I was really what a lot of people call deconstructing their faith. So really taking it apart. I'd actually started that process several years before, but just given the insulated culture that I was in, I didn't have a lot of space to actually explore that, let alone kind of act out in different ways and try things on. And so when I moved to Nashville, I was able to do that in a more overt way. And eventually it led me out of that religion, out of that faith and um, kind of deeper into you know my own work as a human being. And then all of a sudden I started attracting clients who were like going through the same thing. You know, I'm in, I'm in the thick of the Bible belt. And so I always tell people, you know, like when you move here, when you meet somebody, they go, okay, what's your name? And then the next question they ask is what church do you go to? Mm -hmm. And it's just part of Mm -hmm. this culture. And Mm -hmm. so I started seeing clients showing up in my office that were talking about things, you know, they're walking through a store and they hear, you know, these Christian songs and they're triggered. They feel like they're back in these spaces. And, and most of them didn't have what we kind of culturally thought of as religious trauma, like the clergy sexual abuse or really extreme practices. Um, and I started noticing, um, just from my own clinical training, like you're showing up with symptoms of trauma. This is what we see Mm -hmm. with cases of trauma and PTSD and things like that. So I started digging into it. I was working on my own stuff. Sometimes I felt like I was about one day ahead of my clients and, um, you know, just kind of like trying to support how I could. Yeah, exactly. Which is like very normal for most therapists. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I wasn't getting exactly what I thought I needed. I kind of was still, you know, you know, in most therapy programs, we get like half a trauma course, you know, and then we have to like go and, and do our own training. And so, I was like, you know, the training I have is not sufficient. So I started, you know, reading all the books, doing all the training. That's what led me back into my PhD. And that's where I really started to focus a lot of my work on religious trauma, how that lives in the body. Um, And eventually, you know, kind of got done with my dissertation and was approached by uh, an agent who was like, I think you need to write a book on this. And and that was two and a half years ago. And here we are. So I now have this practice um, that is really focused on religious trauma. And, and I consult with other people and write and do things to get the word out. Beautiful. Yeah. Laura, will you say some more about what were the symptoms you were seeing consistently that were symptoms yeah. of trauma that were coming mm-hmm. up with people that were seeing you? Yeah. You know, the word hypervigilance comes to mind the most. Um, in so many high control religions, there is such extreme fear of mistakes, of doing mm. the wrong thing, of being seen by somebody and them interpreting it as sin, for example, mm. and then having to reap the consequences of that. So I saw a lot of extreme hypervigilance, a lot of physiological issues, you know, gastrointestinal issues, autoimmune disorders, mm. things like that, that were popping up um, that may or may not have had like blood work to back them up, but they were living in their body. Sure. Of course, just like a decrease in kind of life quality. So that could have been an increase in depression or um, anxiety, OCD-like symptoms. Um, a real struggle within relationships, um, both how to have relationships, how to maintain boundaries, how to speak up for themselves, have a sense of autonomy. And many of my clients and still are just a huge loss of identity, um, where they're kind of floundering to go, who am I outside of this system that I have grown up in? And, and so, yeah, that's what I started to notice. And then of course, just being triggered at the tiniest things that were familiar to things that happened, quote unquote, back then, whenever back then was. Um, so yeah, that was, that was some of what I 
I started seeing. And and then with that, a lot of shame because, you know, I had these clients in my office that are like, I don't believe this stuff anymore. You know, so why am I having this extreme response to it? A very common one that I saw and still continue to see is a lot of women in particular who were taught messages around abstinence only. And mm-hmm. then they, you know, have rejected some of those messages. They believed, you know, consensual safe sex was okay. And their bodies were literally like closing up. And we were seeing very similar symptoms to those of sexual assault survivors, vaginismus, um, a lot of pain. And um, I mean, to this day, that is probably one of the most prevalent things that I see with my clients in the cases I consult on. Oof. So many things. <laughs> yeah. I feel so much of this in you're, my body. You're one of those conversations. It's like, okay, where to start? Where do I go? Um, yeah. You know, okay. So here's what's coming up first. I think something that I often say is, you know, in 12-step programs, they talk about like principles before personalities. And I think that there's something to me in I always experience the various religions, and I am by no means a religious scholar, but the extent to which I have looked into the different religions, there's so much um, similarity in the stories that are told and like what is the larger yes. meaning of the messaging. Mm-hmm. And I always say, like, I believe religions are just like the most beautiful expressions of our human desire to attempt to understand what we're doing here in these bodies. Mm-hmm. And It is often the humans that are attempting to articulate the messaging or share the messaging that sort of co-opt and distort whatever the larger beautiful truth is. Um, Mm. And so it's this thing of like, how do we hold, like, what is the difference between religion and spirituality? I guess I'm Mm -hmm. first, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like, what are the differences as you see them? Because a lot of what Vanessa and I do talk about, we don't necessarily talk about it in the context of religion often, but there's so much of what I hear you saying that we talk about in the context of patriarchy. And I think that so much of what we've understood about religion up to this point has been like really patriarchal narratives really um, designed to enforce different forms of oppression, certainly on women, but um, on men as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So I guess let's start with like religion versus spirituality and then like the patriarchy piece of Yeah. Well, I think one thing too, I always like to say is I don't consider myself Mm. anti-religion. And like the practice that I run, we're very clear that we say we are not anti-religion. We are, however, anti-harm, anti-power and control, anti-oppression, anti-racism, capitalism, all the things, right? Because those are the things, (laughs) all the isms, because those are the things that are really harming people. Mm. And, And if you can have a religion or faith or spirituality, that's not including those things. I think that's beautiful. Um, and I, and I don't think it's my job as a therapist or a coach or a practitioner or consultant to try to get any of my clients to align with me or any of my, uh, any of the other people I work with in terms of what that end point needs to look like for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because when we talk, I think religion can be such a tender subject to talk about. And so there's this thought of like, if we're, if we're going to unpack this in therapy, then I'm going to come out an atheist. And, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. And I would say that's not maybe, maybe you will, but if you do, it's because that's your choice. That's the, that's your own research and that's your own, you know, kind of path that you've taken. Um, there's, there's a whole group of therapists that would say, you know, in order to be healed, healed from religious trauma, you have to be an atheist. And I would say that's actually very fundamentalist just on the other side of the spectrum. Um, so yeah, incredibly prescriptive. And so I, I definitely take a different approach from that. And so then because of that, when we look at things like religion and spirituality, really the word that comes to mind is like soul or soul work. And so, mm-hmm. you know, really understanding that that is an individual journey for every single person. And that gives every single person the freedom to determine what works for them, what doesn't mm-hmm. work for them, where they need to be curious, where they need to hold firm. And it's not my job as a practitioner to ever determine that for somebody. Um, it's just to kind of invite them to lean deeper into that process. Um, and at least that's what I feel like it's about. <laughs> right. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's pretty spot on with what Danae and I, I think, hold also just even as a therapist, right? I mean, so much of the work I know that I do with my clients, you know, Danae and I both come from a depth psychology background. And so, you know, Jung himself was a Christian and he held his Christian beliefs until he died. But he was also very anti-dogma and very anti um, the establishment of the church. Right. And he wrote about that extensively. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, he talked about the patriarchal aspect of it. And he also talked about the ways in which it took the soul uh, and turned it into almost like a commodity. I believe he actually even used that word at some point. Um, and so yeah. I, I think that as therapists, you're right. It's like one of those tender subjects where it's like we skirt around religion and spirituality sometimes because we feel like we can't go there. And yet, how do we sit across with a human being, another soul, without actually mm-hmm. having spiritually based conversations, mm-hmm. right? Like, what do you yeah. believe is your purpose here? What do mm-hmm. you, you know, what do you use as your practices to connect you to other people, to connect you to something larger, to ground yourself yeah. when you're anxious, right? All of that stuff actually um, can lend itself to a beautiful spiritual conversation. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be kind of under the yeah. structure of like dogma, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading um, the book, oh gosh, what is it? A New New Earth by Eckhart Tolle years ago, whenever he came out with it. And it was a little bit earlier in my own process of kind of, you know, like untangling my faith where I could have like non-spiritual or non-Christian books like out on my coffee table without somebody saying something. And I remember, I think in the introduction, he talked about how so many world religions are very much the same in terms of their stories and kind of what they're, the the problem that they're trying to solve. And yet it's when we try to put these parameters around it to become more certain and to take away more fear. That's actually what becomes like these tiny little boxes that we have to, you know, kind of live out of that really strips us of our humanity and our autonomy Mm -hmm. and is so incredibly prescriptive to say, well, then this, this tiny little box, if you do all the things here and make yourself small enough to fit into that box, then you're truly saved. You're going to make it to eternity or you're living the right way. And that lends itself to power and control, which is, of course, like at the base of patriarchy. Um, You know, it's all dynamics of power and control. And I think that, you know, religion to maybe overtly or covertly understands humans need for stability and certainty and provides a framework for that. and, and I think that's where we, it can really then lend itself towards a lot of harm potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what you just said was so profound to me. I think there's something mm-hmm. in the way that I experience patriarchy and certainly as you're speaking to it now, many of the world's religions um, have sort of weaponized this human desire to know and to have mm-hmm. something to grasp onto in terms of certainty. And I think you know, what you were saying before about like these characteristics of trauma and you were saying, you know, just like fear of making mistakes and hypervigilance. And I was like, God, if that isn't like the majority of people that come in for (laughs) sessions. But I think so much of the idea of what we are taught in our societal framework right now is that there's a right way to do this. There's a right way to parent. There's a right way to live your life. This is the path Mm -hmm. you should follow. And if you diverge from this, you're going to have an unhappy life. And it's like, well, who decides? And who has this happy life that's perfect that you speak of? I don't know anyone Mm -hmm. who's been living that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all been an illusion, but it's sort of been an illusion that we've bought into because we imagine that it'll keep us safe, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It plays on our very basic human needs. Mm. So what is your work look like with clients now in terms of Mm. reframing some of that? Yeah, I'm a very body-based practitioner. I appreciate, uh, you know, somatic experiencing the work of Peter Levine, Janita Fisher, you know, Stephen Porges, the nervous system, because I feel like it really does speak to those basic levels of who we are. Mm. Um, And I've heard Peter Levine say this, like the goal of trauma healing is to like have a return to our inherent goodness, which I really, really love. And I really resonate. And so when I'm working with clients who are coming out of high control religions, you know, there, there's 
there is the cognitive piece that you do with them where it's like, okay, we got to just figure out what just happened to me, you know, and, and that oftentimes leads into a more body-based kind of, um, understanding and, um, the work that we do together. And really the way that I work with clients first, I, I am a very eclectic. I don't subscribe to just kind of one modality of therapy, but the one thing that I will kind of hang my hat on is the concept of internalized safety and stability, like really understanding how to find those resources within yourself. I think that's important, obviously, for trauma resolution, generally speaking. But when we're talking about coming out of these systems of power and control, relationships of power control, so that would include things like domestic violence and, um, and other control systems, we are so divorced from ourselves, from our bodies. Um, we don't know how to tap into those internal resources. We are trained and conditioned to look outside of ourselves uh, to see, am I okay? Am I safe? And what I'm doing, is that going to allow me to stay connected? And so when we do that, that can provide so much anxiety, everything, the bar changes all the time. And it truly makes us dependent on anybody except for ourselves in order to navigate life. And so I really like to start at that point to say, we've got to start working on the internal resources, building safety and stability that you can find within yourself. Mm -hmm. And then we move into resolving trauma from that point. Will you say more about some of the examples or like ways that you would help people kind of find or come back to that place of internalized safety and stability? Yeah, I would venture to say that most of my clients, uh, it's about finding internalized safety for the first time instead of coming back to it. Because mm-hmm. most of the time, they have never experienced anything outside of a system like that. Yeah. Um, many people their whole grow existence. up in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in so many cases, the people that are supposed to love them and keep them safe are also giving them messages that are, in my opinion, uh, potentially abusive and very harmful. Yeah. When you tell a, a child that they are going to burn in a lake of fire that, you know, but I'm your parent and I love you. That can be a problem. So I use that just as an example to say for most clients, we're looking at what is internal safety for the very first time. And that's, that is a, usually a very long process because it is re it's redoing so much of that internal landscape. So I know for me, I will use a lot of like guided imagery. I'll use some techniques, the calm safe space, like from EMDR, where Mm -hmm. I'll say, let's just go in and we'll imagine this. We'll start to notice the internal physiological cues that are shifting. I really heighten the sensorial factors from that, um, both within whatever that image is, as well as noticing well, okay, what's happening? What are you, you know, look at, pay attention to your breath, pay attention to your, you know, your posture, pay attention to what it feels like to be sitting on this space and, and really trying to heighten that. And they can, in some cases, only stay in that space for a second or two, because that feels so unfamiliar than the external safety that they've learned to depend on. Um, but we just build from there. Um, and so we go, okay, that we were, we were there for two seconds. The next time, let's see if we can stretch it out to three and kind of, we would use like the language of like the window of tolerance, like, right? Like widening that window of tolerance or capacity to, um, withstand things that might be uncomfortable without moving into that realm of being intolerable and thereby, you know, triggering or re-traumatizing the person. Um, and you know, that often takes a long time. Um, it's, but what I love about somatic work is that, you don't need me to practice it. You have all the tools within yourself. So I can say, let's like, could, could you go home and practice this, you know, in your everyday life, set a, set a timer and do this, you know, five times a day or whatnot. You don't need me to do it. Let's start to build some muscle memory, essentially, just like we would if we're working out so that you ha- are starting to develop some new skills. And, and I always tell them like, don't worry about doing it in a crisis situation. Just try it in the neutral situations. Like give yourself kind of some, um, habitual type, you know, we're trying to create habits here essentially. And then we build from there. Um, but that's, yeah, usually my starting point is somewhere in that area. Yeah. I love that. Mm. Yeah. You <laughs> going back to my head, Laura, that you were saying that, the conversation starter a lot of time 
So when people are out, it's like, what church do you go go to? And I was like, wow, it's just it's like very fascinating how different parts of the country are very different. Yeah. And that's like, that's wow. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is how you see your practice has shifted. Um, maybe your client base has shifted just like over the last couple of years, because I'd be shocked if there haven't been some real shifts over, over yeah. the last three to four years. But I'm curious. Yeah. Well, in the introduction of my book, I actually speak to that a little bit because I mean, religious trauma has been a lot around as long as religion has, right? Right. Like that's just where we're at, but we're starting to see it in a different way. And, um, though I don't try to get into politics, I don't think we can ignore the 2016 election and the variety of outcomes that it had and and what was seen in that. And I know in a lot of high control religious communities, there was some major shifts at that time. We kind of saw this like mass exodus of people coming out going, hold on a second. These, you know, spiritual authorities that I've been listening to, that I've been told, you know, know all the things and, and how I'm supposed to live. And I've been following this are now endorsing somebody that I might not feel like matches all of that. And, and there was a lot of like cognitive dissonance and just frustration and confusion. And so we started to see all these people coming out. Of course, that's also the time that social media is really becoming, you know, something, a tool for connection and a tool for being able to talk about what's happening. And so I personally started seeing a lot of people popping up on t- um, on different timelines and social media platforms using specific hashtags that are all mm-hmm. talking about the same thing. For me personally, that was like an incredible moment. I'd been like deconstructing for seven, eight years before that point and thought I was very much in the minority. I mean, like I had two friends where we would like hide out in Mexican restaurants, drinking margaritas, trying to figure out like what had happened to us. And we're like, I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced this. So on the one hand for me, even personally, there was this like, like veil of shame that was lifted. I was like, I am not alone. Like this was not me. There's something so beautiful in that connectiveness. You know, like Brene Brown talks about like shame cannot exist in that space of empathy and connection. Um, And so to have this place where people were not so isolated was really beautiful. And then it also highlighted the magnitude of like being triggered and what was happening and and sometimes got very destructive, um, you know, just kind of fighting back and forth like we see online and things like that. As a therapist, um, I was actually in my um, PhD program at the time. I was in my practicum and I brought up to my professor, I said, hey, can I like create a manual for therapists on like maybe how to support clients who are going going through this? Because I'm noticing that my waiting list is starting to get longer and longer, and I don't think I'm going to have the capacity to do this. So that project was approved, and I went to Twitter, and I said, Mm -hmm. I had like 40 followers. And I was like, what would you want your therapist to know? And like overnight, I got hundreds of responses, Mm -hmm. which was just incredible. And and so I created that. Um, And so so then we're starting to see, okay, we have some resources, but in terms of my practice, for whatever reason, because I had some spaces to talk like podcasts and social media and things like that, my my waiting list was incredibly long. But, you know, by the time 2020 came along, when every therapist, you know, uh, waiting list was long, I was like, I, I can't tell people like, yeah, I could see you in summer of 2024. How does that sound? Um, and so it actually led me a little bit out of therapy into the coaching world. And I had several other colleagues of mine and I that had done um, a lot of like advanced trauma training in modalities that didn't necessarily require you to be a therapist, things like brain spotting and somatic experiencing and internal family systems. And all of us were like, okay, like we have these skills that we can provide to people in a an ethical way, in a trauma-informed and a trauma-trained way. And mm-hmm. so I I created my company, which is the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. And we are online coaching. Um, we don't practice as therapists. We are very clear about that. Um, but we, we use the modalities that we're trained in to work with that. And that has been one of, uh, like from a business side and professional side, that's been the biggest thing because we have clients from literally all over the world, every continent, 
except for Antarctica. But you know, that for, for good reason. Um, but yeah, it's people going, I don't, I don't have access to a therapist or a coach or a support person. And I certainly don't have access to somebody who understands this. I'm, I only have people that are like, Oh, it was just a bad church experience or, you know, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And, and, and I'm, they're having to like spend time and money to educate their coach, their therapist, their, their person that they're working with. And so that was one of the things that we saw as that was one of the gaps that I saw as a need to say like, well, what if somebody could come in and you don't have to convince me that it was that bad? Mm. Like we just started a baseline that, yeah, what happened to you? That was that bad. And Mm. you don't need to convince me otherwise. And you don't really need to educate me because I do understand that. I understand those dynamics of power and control that are at work. And that's, I think, if I were to do a poll of our clients, I think they would say that is one of the things that draws them to our practice. Um, yeah. What do you think about, you know, I feel like there will be somebody listening that this, this would be helpful for, um, I know for myself, I, you know, I was, I was baptized Methodist. I was raised going to church, but it wasn't super hardcore. We went every Sunday until we didn't. And I think I was probably 13 where I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I didn't get dragged, you know, it wasn't, but I actually have the experience of, um, my, I mean, my mom, but also family members, uh, probably an age related thing, but around 2016, they actually went the opposite way, right? They doubled down. Um, and they began unequivocally supporting people who in the past they would never have supported, like mind blowingly kind of got sucked into this world where it was, you know, the conversations that were being had in my family were like, I don't even know who you are anymore. Right. Um, and listen, I know their histories and I know their traumas and I know their upbringings. And I, as a psychologist or as a therapist, right, I can see where all of that kind of comes from, but long winded way, I guess, to ask the question of when you are in relationship with somebody who is, um, doubled down on that and is so Mm. kind of in that world, uh, and you are the one who is doing the work of the deconstruction and you are the one who is doing Mm. the work of being able to kind of pull yourself back and see things, you know, and you're researching. And I I have a lot of my clients read the chalice and the blade, for example, I don't know if you know this one, but it's Mm -hmm. amazing by Rianne Eisler, Rianne Eisler, um, just talking about, you know, when Christianity came into the fold and how it took over the goddess religions and the actual historical context mm-hmm. of that and how much of the Bible is actually pulled from the goddess religions. And I mean, identical, right? And mm-hmm. I've I've really made it a point to educate myself on this, but I have a lot of these conversations with others who are like, and yet my mom or my dad or my sister is so in it still that I don't know mm-hmm. how to have a relationship with them. Right. I'm just wondering, I guess, like what your thoughts are on that. Cause I know, you know, we're not just talking politically here. We're talking religion too. This has been a big thing since 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is worth noting that there, we are seeing kind of a marriage of religion and politics in some really shocking, shocking, but not shocking ways. Yeah. 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 Very disturbing ways. So I think it's very, I mean, I think if you look at the research, you're seeing people kind of uh, just they're synonymous for one another, you know, in yeah. terms of, um, with religion and politics. So I, I want to name that as something. And then also recognizing that I think the family piece is really, really difficult. And that is something that I know I work with a lot of my clients on, uh, practitioners I work with. That's always something I remember. I want to say it was probably in like 2017. I think psychology today had some article where they'd already started studying, uh, with families where there was opposing political views and watching kind of these rifts happen um, because of falling on different sides of the political spectrum and and just noticing this as a brand new phenomenon. So then I think when you put religion in there also, which is oftentimes something that people find their self-worth, their identity, their values it it becomes everything about them to say, no, like that's not for me, or I don't believe that you're not just throwing out maybe a sense, a, a set of values or quote unquote rules. You're saying no to that person, yep. which then our very natural human response is to puff up and defend ourselves and protect ourselves to make sure that we will be okay. Um, and, and so, you know, 
in the best case scenario, we would be able to have empathy and compassion for that because we were once that person too, probably. However, that's not always, you know, possible and maybe sometimes not even the the right answer, depending on, you know, sometimes it's like, no, we need to have very clear boundaries. We need to maybe offer some space between ourselves and that family member, family members for a a while or a long time or maybe forever. Um, And so I think that that is, I think that's something that there's so many layers to it, you know, because we can talk about boundaries and we can talk about what are some different ways to try to relate to and with your family that don't have to touch on these, um, you know, sensitive topics. We can talk about, um, yeah, just like re- redefining what that relationship is. But the fact of the matter is like, it's incredibly complex and it is filled with grief. Um, because I think that when we start to say like, wow, my family now views me differently mm. or the love feels conditional because I've simply said I'm maybe adopting a different set of beliefs and ways of living that it can feel like such a huge betrayal and rejection. Yeah. And so I think, you know, within trauma work, we're also dealing with a lot of grief work. And so much of that is family stuff. Um, I always say fundamentalism is a coping mechanism for a dysregulated nervous system. Um, and so like there to me now where I'm at, that allows me to have empathy when I see whether it's friends or family or whatnot to go, you are not against me. You are trying to keep yourself safe, safe, right? But that's not always accessible to us, you know, sometimes, especially in the moment. moment. Yeah. Yeah. But even sometimes having that, you know, I I don't think cognitive information necessarily uh, takes away the embodiment, uh, you know, how we embody trauma. However, Mm -hmm. it certainly can help and it can start to build compassion and Mm -hmm. start to help us become aware of what's happening in us when they're triggered. Am I also then triggered? And now we're both coming from postures of defensiveness. What might I need to do to get to Mm -hmm. safety and connection? There we go back to those internal resources. that would then maybe allow me to engage with them in a different way. So mm. yeah. That grief piece is, it's real. I mean, I know Huge. you and I today have talked about yeah. this, but the, just having that conversation where I've realized how much grief I have around not being able to connect with my mother, for example, in a way that I wish that we could, or like the kind of relationship I wish we could have, because there's all these minefields now that I feel like I'm constantly avoiding or like I'm the one that's kind of putting the boundaries and holding the boundaries and the structures in place. Right. And it's, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of effort to be the one that's constantly mitigating those minefields, you know? Um, and I've just, I've had a lot of clients speak to similar experiences and, and that grief is, um, you know, it comes in waves and it, it doesn't, there's no end point in that grief, which I think is hard for people to hear. Um, you know, oh, I'm not just going to get over this. No. And and every time you're with that person, you're probably going to have another wave of it. And it's, it's coming back to that internal system of safety, like you were talking to, mm-hmm. um, and just riding those waves, you know? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. I, I, trauma work is grief work. It really mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, because even in the moments, I, one of my former therapists, she said, I, like, I would have these profound moments of like, whoa, and then immediately feel sad. And she's yeah. like, that's what we call like the grief relief sandwich, right? Of this like relief of like, oh, I've unburdened that or, you know, I've resolved something. But then it also shows me this aspect of like, like maybe what I didn't get or maybe what I'm still not getting that I, I needed or this part, you know, that that shouldn't have happened in the first place. And, and to just let ourselves, like you said, just ride the waves. I mean, it literally is just, it's waves, <laughs> like learn to surf. Like that's, you know, um, yeah, very much. That's such a huge part of what we do. Hmm. Wow. The wheels are yeah. turning, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just so struck by, I feel like I've heard a lot of people speak to you for whatever reason we are going through certain sort of a heightened individuation process. Um, I think as Yona would call it collectively. And there's something in how, you know, I'm I'm listening to you talk about the way that you've transformed your work. And I'm like, God bless you. <laughs> That's like so necessary and important. And thank you for being a pioneer in 
being willing to work that way because something I've been so struck by and sort of conflicted with over the last several years is there is something about many of the clinical psychology modalities that as much as we do need a framework for some sort of like Mm -hmm. safety and not anyone can just hold people's very complex Mm -hmm. trauma. And there are so many elements of these bureaucracies and these ways of enforcing the way that something should be done within a certain framework that feel unbelievably patriarchal and minimizing Mm -hmm. and often not allowing people the space to actually support people's healing from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So I love that you have figured out a way to balance both um, really utilizing the training that is so necessary and the credentials that, you know, make me equipped to support whatever you're bringing to me, but also that I'm not going to be put in a box of something that can often be really limiting and the nuance and the complexity of what we are as humans, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think we saw even like at the beginning of the pandemic when some of those state uh, lines were kind of lifted a bit and there was some flexibility with licensure and whatnot. Nobody was like, there there wasn't like this increase in like, you know, therapist client harm or, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. In fact, some people would say, I actually found support that felt like it fit me better. And, um, and I can really appreciate that. And, And I agree. It's like, gosh, if I find a therapist in Washington that I really connect with and can be so supportive of me, but I can't have access to them because I live in Tennessee. Like that does feel very yucky. Um, and so, but then, like you said, I, I mean, that was the biggest reason that I had hesitations. I'm like, could we do this? Because there are provisions that credentialing boards provide in terms of safety for both the therapist and the client that I find to be very, very beneficial. And so, um, one of the nice thing is because I work with people who all have a background in mental health, I, there's like a level of, you know, kind of a standard that we are all like, nope, this is how we operate. Everybody's very aware of what their scope of uh, practice and limitations are. So I trust who I work with, but I say on the website, I'm like, there is, there's no board that you can go to. Like, if you feel like your practitioner is, is operating unethically, you can come to me as the director and you, we, we have an in-house process for dealing with that, but there isn't a board that you can go to. And, mm-hmm. and so then that becomes a risk, you client, for you working with us. And um, obviously we'll try to not, you know, do that, but we just wanted you to know upfront that like, this is a risk and, and we can't provide that same level of safety that a therapist could in that mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, that's all I can do is be upfront with it and disclose, like, this is why we do what we do and here's how we do it and um, the models that we work from. And if you want to join us, that's great. Yeah. Okay. I have a, I have a question that might yeah. be a little bit of a hot button. I don't know, but it's been something that's like swirling as we're talking. And now you guys are talking about kind of like state boards and all of these regulatory things. How do we feel about, and I, I mean, I don't have like one way or the other. I just recently have two different couples. Um, well, one couple, one individual that have come to me, uh, after working with a Christian marriage counselor and (laughs) having it, let's just say not be super helpful, at least for the woman in the dynamic. And we're talking like a heteronormative dynamic in both cases. And so (laughs) I'm like trying to say this in a way that doesn't make it sound like, you know, (laughs) But it's like, I'm wondering like what your thoughts are, right? Because I, I, I know that, you know, listen, it's exactly what we're saying. You don't have to be a quote unquote licensed marriage and family therapist in order to be helpful and do amazing work Mm -hmm. out there as a healer and all of these things. And also, um, at least in my personal experience with the clients that are coming to me, there has been some harm done, uh, and some things that have been said to them within their relationship that I find to be wildly inaccurate, unethical, um, just Mm -hmm. downright wrong. (laughs) And I'm just wondering, they don't have any regulatory system either. And so that they, they come to me Mm -hmm. and they're like, what can I do? And I'm like, well, not really anything. I mean, you could talk to your Mm -hmm. church leaders, but I don't know how far you're going to get. So anyway, I'm just throwing that conversation starter out there. Can I just add on to that before you respond, Laura, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this additional piece, because from my perspective, that is true of a lot of the licensed, um, couples therapists, 
in oh, the field sure. right now sure, sure, are sure. just so unbelievably invested in upholding patriarchy? patriarchal standards yeah. <laughs> of marriage and keeping women in certain boxes. So I just want to name like it doesn't have to be a Christian therapist for that to be the case, people. But please, Laura, carry on. I just wanted yeah. to throw that in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we start at the very baseline of like when you have a Christian counseling degree, oftentimes those are unregulated degrees. Yes. They are mixed with like a divinity uh, or pastoral degree. So you're not actually in what we would like clinical counseling classes. You're taking like pastoral counseling classes. I certainly don't want to knock on that because some people do find that to be incredibly helpful, mm-hmm. but it's not the same level maybe of what we'd say like rigorousness that like a, a credentialed program where you have to meet certain standards. Um, yeah, they, they wouldn't have that. They don't, they do have the, what is it? The American Christian Counseling Association, ACCA or something like that, where they would say, you know, here's kind of our code of ethics and things like that. But again, that's not a state credentialed or nationally credentialed board. So there is, again, going back to that safety piece, there's not necessarily like a process of here's how we, you know, handle unethical behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, unfortunately, many clients uh, who I work with in cases that I've consulted on that are coming to me after seeing a Christian counselor, or a Christian therapist mm-hmm. who are describing exactly what you're describing, Vanessa, just a lot of shame and kind of having to undo what that person did. I think it is interesting in our country that we have, you know, like that Christianity as a religion is the only kind of group that singles themselves out from the therapeutic um, kind of spaces. I mean, if you look on psychology today, you might have a variety of different therapists that have like religious connections where they say like, yeah, I you know, might practice this or, you know, that this might inform certain things, but they don't necessarily call themselves a Buddhist therapist mm-hmm. or a Hindu therapist or an Islamic mm-hmm. or a Muslim therapist, right? They're just a mm-hmm. therapist. So I think that's interesting. I think that speaks to the privilege that Christianity has in our country, which then even goes back to the patriarchal thing. Um, and then within that, they are able to say, you know, whereas we might say, hey, our personal beliefs, values are supposed to remain outside our session um, as much as they can, even though we're humans. Um, that's not necessarily the case with um, with Christian counselors. There's an expectation that you pull your Bible out and you say, well, what does the Bible say? Okay, then how do we get to that standard? Um, and unfortunately when you're basing it off of a very patriarchal book, you're going to get a lot of patriarchal results. Um, it's up for interpretation yes, too sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A book that very is much. Right, I mean, interpreted yeah. very differently by different yeah. people. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, exactly. So I think there is that there's not necessarily that professional boundary of, you know, of like, th- these are my beliefs and I can set those aside so that you, whoever you is sitting in front of me can lean in more to what it is that is important to you. I don't think that that's necessarily what is prevalent. And then to your point, Danae, like, I don't think it's limited just to Christian faith-based religious therapists. I think that a lot of people can, and it is based off of this idea of a cis het, you know, lifelong legal marriage. And that Mm -hmm. is the pinnacle of what we should strive for. And as a result, we have a lot of people staying in abusive relationships, staying in non-compatible relationships, staying in relationships because they feel just forced to rather than being able to navigate a life outside of that. Um, And that does, that does come from I think personal therapy values, you know, who, who am I as a therapist? I, I supervise also, I'm an, uh, an approved supervisor for, um, AAMFT. And so I work with a lot of supervisees who see couples and I frequently have to remind them, like the goal of your work with them is not that they stay together. Um, (laughs) that might be the, the outcome, (laughs) Right. Uh-huh. But, but you did not fail as a therapist, nor did they fail as a couple if they end up, uh, separating or parting ways. Like that, that started way before they ever came in your office. And that's a decision that only they can make. Right. Um, and so I think when we, like, I know when I talk to my 
supervisees about that. There's a freedom then to like not have to be like, oh, well, we've got to keep them together at yeah. any cost. Um, because that doesn't, that's not the bar we're trying to reach anymore. Um, but I think that's a different perspective. I don't know that. I don't know how many other people take that perspective. I I'm like, I'm you know, an outlier. I'm very happy that. to meet you, Lord. I say that to my clients um, when they come to me. I'm like, just so yeah. clear, my objective is not to keep you guys together. I mean, yeah. that's like in the first meeting, you know? So I think it's great that you're yes. reminding your supervisees that that's, that's not mm-hmm. the bar to your point. Yeah. Yeah. But what I love so much about what you were saying, Laura, and I think I am so struck by how... <laughs> Everyone that I am really moved by their wisdom lately is coming back to the same conversation about our work collectively is shifting from the space of like looking to the external to moving into the space of the inner authority is where I move from first. And I think this is something we speak about constantly, but you know, a lot of times I think people hear in what Vanessa and I are saying around like codependency and how we're sort of reconstructing um, some of these deconstructing, excuse me, these codependent paradigms that we're saying like, we don't need one another. And what I think is so important, what I hear what you're saying is until we get into the space of moving from our inner knowing and an inner authority, um, we can't do what Brene Brown talks about, like finding that, that safety in like, I belong when I am able to be vulnerable with you and the truth of who I am versus I belong when I tap dance to do whatever I need to do to belong in this group. Right. Um, because it is, it's like so much of this is just everything we've been raised in. And it is absolutely a new paradigm in terms of the world of therapy Mm -hmm. that you are speaking to, because one of my favorite books, Untamed, Glennon Doyle talks quite clearly about her couples therapist mm-hmm. saying, well, some women just enjoy giving BJs and they're miserable, like, go back to your miserable marriage forever. And that is not a rare thing for, no. for a rare stance for a therapist to take. And so I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate you yeah. and the work that you're doing in the world because mm. it's so unbelievably vital right now, I think, especially more yeah. than ever. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, you have to love yourself before you can be loved by another. I don't believe that that's true. But I do believe that when we do have that safety and stability within ourselves, it shifts the way that we give and receive love. And it allows us to accept that from other people and in different ways and in, in ways that people can show up, right? Like, you know, like, oh, you're, you're showing up in this way and that's the way that you can love me. And I can accept mm-hmm. that even if it's not exactly what I would want, but yes. that comes from having that connection internally. And so I really do think that, yeah, then it is important to love yourself, you know, and love other people and be connected in those sorts of things. But I appreciate like when you do your own work, when you find that within yourself, it also gives people permission to just show up as themselves mm-hmm. yes. um, and and to be in a way that feels more connecting uh, rather than, you know, those postures of defense. Because mm-hmm. there's so much like inner gaslighting because a lot of the traumatic experiences that you're talking about, like we knew this was wrong. And yet mm-hmm. in order to maintain a sense of belonging, we talked ourselves out of the truth that we knew was there, right? And so that's sort of yeah. the reclaiming. It's like, no, your wisdom mm-hmm. was always correct. It's just, mm-hmm. I think, a lot of permission that I would imagine you're giving to, like, own mm-hmm. that for yourself. Well, yeah, yeah. I think to layer on top yeah. of what you just said, Danae, I think there's, like, that added layer when we're talking specifically about the the religious piece, which is most of these people coming to you, Laura, they actually mm-hmm. aren't coming back to us. Like they literally have been in this structure since they took their first breath. And so helping them understand that the inner wisdom is in their body already. Right. Like I do believe Mm -hmm. that we as beings, regardless of what and how and who we're born into, you know, Mm -hmm. family structures, religious structures, um, that wisdom is in our body. We're born with that innate wisdom. Right. And we might not have ever been able to practice it because of what we were born into. Right. But it is there. So like to to build on what you're Mm -hmm. saying today, like, yeah, even in those situations, there is still a coming back to, there is still a reclaiming Mm -hmm. of, you know, even if it does feel like we're absolutely starting at square one, um, because we're working with Mm -hmm. like pre-verbal, you know, out the gate kind of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I have found at least with my clients, the, the level of self 
trust that comes when they realize that that's always been there, you know, and that they can access it at any point in their body is just so profound. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. you also kind of leading that charge too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think I know I said it earlier, but one of the reasons I love what Peter Levine talks about when he says, you know, healing trauma is like coming back to your inherent goodness mm-hmm. for me. And for so many of the people that I work with, that is the exact opposite of right. what we were taught and what was indoctrinated. In fact, like literally we were taught that from the moment you took your first breath, you were evil and sinful and unworthy and undeserving even of the air that you're breathing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that is like woven in, you know, from these external sources from, you know, I, I, there is zero times in my life that I can remember like not having that, you know, like that was my entire history. Um, so then this idea of like coming back to your inherent goodness feels like such a beautifully rebellious, like mm-hmm. feat of, you know, like courage because you are going against what other people told you you were and saying, no, 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 like that was never me in the first place. Like there is so much good in there. Um, and that I, I just is always resonated with me. And it's something that I hold on to. And I, I, you know, kind of tiptoe that into sessions and my clients are like, no, oh, no, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, you know, and it's like, it's a process to actually believe that, to actually embody that. And yet it changes everything. Um, when, when we can finally rest in our, in our wisdom, in our goodness and how that really is innate, um, and has always been there. So Mm -hmm. I love that. That's the part I love when clients get that. It's Mm -hmm. so beautiful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Beautifully rebellious. I'm going to remember that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Laura. Well, we have our lightning round of questions that we So the first question is, who have been your greatest teachers, um, inspirations, people who have influenced your path up to this point? Um, Well, I know I said Pierre Levine, but I will in fact say Janina Fisher is probably personally one of the people whose work was the most personally transformational in my own Mm -hmm. life. Um, I also really like Elizabeth Lesser. I don't know what she's doing now, but a long time ago, she was, you know, like she wrote this book called Broken Open, which just (laughs) resonated so deeply with me. Um, Yeah, I would say when I look back at like some of the more profound, like what has really resonated and stuck with me, those two in particular. I mean, I love like Glennon Doyle and Brene and like all those people, but it's like, yeah, when I look back at where the transformation has happened, they've been pretty pretty pivotal for me. Mm, beautiful. I love it. So this idea of flow, right? This thing that you kind of drop into where you just could blink your eyes and an entire day goes by. What is that for you? Where do you find yourself when you're in flow? Oh, outside for sure in the woods. Um, <laughs> like that, if I could be there all the time, that would be, that would be it. I am I don't think I'm made for indoors, <laughs> but it would also have to be like a 50 to 70 degrees. I'm I, <laughs> like, that would be the perfect, like in the woods, 50 to 70 degrees, sun shining and my dog with me. Yeah. <laughs> and what breaks your heart? Oh, a lot, unfortunately. Um, I think going back to what we were just talking about with the unawareness of inherent goodness and wisdom, Mm -hmm. that's um, where the grief relief comes in there, I think, is for me. Um, Because in the moments where we realize I've had it all along, I am inherently good and wise, there's so much sadness for all the times that we didn't know that, all the times I didn't know that. And I think for me then, whether it's for myself or for my clients or my friends or whomever I'm with, like that to me feels heartbreaking because it feels like it took away large chunks of our lives. Um, so I hurt for like the younger versions of myself or my clients that that had to hold those messages in order to survive. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's probably what breaks my heart a lot. Yeah. And then the last question is, what's your favorite food? Ooh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Frozen peaches. Um, Whoa, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a Nashvillian of you. You've only been there for 14 years, huh? <laughs> I 
I know. Yeah, I don't know why I like started eating them this summer. I put like uh, I have like dairy free Cool Whip or whatever, and I put that on there with some like chocolate chips, and that's like every night. I was like, oh, this is just going to be my summer thing, and I'm like, oh, now it's like December, and <laughs> we're still going with it. So, uh, yeah, right. that definitely peaches, frozen peaches. Yeah, all right, I'm gonna have to try this. Peaches are one of those fruits where yes. like you get them. It's like an avocado; yeah. they're good, and then like in 36 hours, yeah. they're not good. You have a very yes. small window. So if you can freeze them, yes. then they're good. I imagine freeze them, fantastic. and then then you let them thaw just a little bit, so they're not hard, but they're not like fully soft. And then that's the perfect spot. Oh, yeah, chocolate <laughs> chips. I'm on it. Uh huh. Yep. Try it. Try it. <laughs> wow, Dr. Lori Anderson. I just I, I feel like I have to name that my wheels have been spinning the whole time I've been listening to you, thinking about your journey because. Mm-hmm. I just really want to salute you. The bravery that I know was required for you to stand in the space that you are today and hold space for people in the way that you are kind of makes me emotional because I love it. Makes me emotional. (laughs) And I know it feels kind of hard to be one of the freaks and weirdos. I can't imagine being the outlier and, you know, othered in the way that I know you had to have been Mm -hmm. and have been, um, and stay with yourself through that. I just, I really Mm -hmm. admire you so much. And I just want to name that because I think, um, Mm -hmm. I know you were having an incredible impact and it took a lot of bravery to be the person you are. So thank you. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. This was amazing. And I just, I know it's going to be truly helpful. So thank you so much. Oh, you know, before we go though, book, tell us, like, we're going to link everything. Tell us about where people can get more more (laughs) More of you. Yes. I wrote a book. Yes. uh, In October. (laughs) It comes out in October? Yes. No, it It came came out out in October. October. It's called When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. And it's a lot more of what we've talked about today. So the first kind of four chapters, I I go a little bit more into my own story, but then, you know, what is trauma, the nervous system, you know, um, spiritual and religious abuse, adverse religious experiences. But then the bulk of the book is talking about what is it like to live in a healing body? It's based off of the research that I did in my doctoral work, um, the idea of healing as an ongoing concept rather than this like fixed point that we get to. And so when we are living in a healing body, here's some of the things that we start to see. These are the areas that start to kind of come together, relationships and boundaries and grieving and emotions and all the things. So um, yeah, so it's out now wherever you purchase books. And um, yeah, I, it's been fun to like, see it out there in the world. Congratulations. I love it. Well, we will link to it. So anybody who's listening, y'all can go and click that link and get it. And just again, thank you so much for being on. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. 